Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Let me just uh, say again a word of welcome, those in the room, those watching online. Uh, It is the most wonderful time of the year, right? This is wonderful. Um, I want to especially just welcome those of you, if it is your first time in the room or if it's your first time in a while, uh, we're especially glad that you're here and we've got ways for you to connect. Marcy shared some of those with you, but uh, if you fall through the cracks in any of those ways, just find somebody, let them know, hey, I'm new here and we'd love to help you take your next step. Um, We have a team uh, that's specifically designed every week uh, to welcome everyone, but especially those who are new uh, to the room. That's our guest services team. And while we're still kind of in the Thanksgiving season, I want to give thanks for this team. Would you, if you're a part of our guest services team, our seaters, uh, parking lot, new here tents, all of that, would you stand so we can recognize you and thank you for what you do every week? Guest services team, church, help me thank these guys for what they do. Thank you all so much. Thank you all so much. Well, when I was uh, younger, I had a certain favorite holiday. You might be able to guess what it was. As I've gotten older, that has changed. My favorite holiday has become Thanksgiving, and it's not because of the food, if you can believe it. How many of you are like me? You say Thanksgiving is the, the, the best holiday that there is. Thank you, Dan. Leslie, yeah, I see you. Y'all can come forward. We'll have a little huddle here. Well, when I was younger, my favorite holiday was not Thanksgiving. My favorite holiday was Christmas. How many of you, your favorite holiday is Christmas. Man, what are the rest of y'all doing? Fireworks on the 4th of July? What's going on here? Well, Christmas was my favorite holiday as a child. It's a favorite holiday of most children, and you know the reason, right? Presents. In fact, I asked my own kids, and I asked a few of my nephews and nieces this week, what's your favorite holiday? Christmas. Why? Presents. I said, do you like giving them or getting them? And you could see their mind working. There was the real answer and the right answer, and they said, both. (laughs) We love Christmas, right? And part of the reason is we love gifts and we love unwrapping the presents that wait for us on Christmas morning. This next few weeks, we're going to be in a series called Unwrapping Christmas. And it's a lot more than presents in boxes. We believe the greatest gift that ever came was the man Jesus, the God-man who came from heaven to redeem us. In fact, you may or may not know that Christmas is the most significant day, the the first Christmas at least, was the most significant day in the history of the world. It is the day that divides history itself. We say B.C. and A.D., before Christ and in the year of our Lord. Even those who have no framework for Christian faith whatsoever, those who don't even know why they do it, still break up history into those two sequences, and it's because of Christmas. Not only that, but it is the transition point in the Bible that I'm holding in my hand. We call the two sections of the Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament, and those are broken up by what? By Christmas, the day that Jesus came. Perhaps these words will be familiar from Luke chapter 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field watching over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes 
and lying in a manger. We read these verses, many of us, every Christmas. In fact, we may even watch the Charlie Brown special where Linus quotes them. Matthew would share similar details to Luke in his account of the first Christmas and, and go beyond a little bit because Matthew tells us about the wise men who came from the east, the Magi, to bring gifts to the baby Jesus. But one of Jesus' followers, a man named John, took a different path to explain what Christmas is about. He, he didn't start in Bethlehem. He didn't start with a manger. John chose rather to go much further back in time to tell us what was really happening on that first Christmas morning. In fact, John tells us in John chapter 20, I want to share this with you, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John's going to give us the reason that he wrote what we call the Gospel of John. He says this, Now Jesus did a lot of other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But in order to get there, John has to establish two things about Jesus. First, who Jesus is, and secondly, why Jesus matters. Let me let you in on a little secret. We have the same challenge in front of us in the 21st century that John had in the first century. Most of the people in our world, most of the people in your neighborhood and your coworkers, they don't really know who Jesus is. And because of that, they don't really know why Jesus matters. They may even have a nativity scene in their front yard, but they don't really grasp who he is or why he matters. John would have an additional problem, and it was this. His audience, which is mostly first century Jews at the time, cannot accept that Jesus is the Son of God. Can, cannot get there in their minds. And there's a reason for that. If I were to take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, Moses establishes what's basically the constitution for the Israelite people. Surrounded by polytheistic nations, nations that had gods for everything under the sun and above it, Moses rang out with these words in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was the, the most unique fact about the Jewish people from history past and to today is they've always been a monotheistic religion. They've always believed that there is only one God. And so all of a sudden, Christians come around talking about Jesus, the Son of God, and the Jewish people are going, no, 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 we can't accept that. That's heresy. So here's John's question. Here's his challenge. How do you get someone to accept a premise that they fundamentally reject? And the answer is not by commenting on their Facebook post. <laughs> Learned that one the hard way. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to quote these from the NIV. You'll see it in a different translation behind me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John's going to begin by establishing who Jesus is, and he uses these words, in the beginning. Now let me ask you something. What do you think this would call to mind in the, uh, in the minds of the readers or the audience that John is writing to? What are they going to think of when they hear the words in the beginning? 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What John is going to do here right at the beginning, he's going to use language that is familiar and accepted. See, I, I understand in the beginning, but he's going to use familiar language to draw them into an idea that is both unfamiliar and to them quite radical. This is very similar to uh, something that Dr. King did in his I Have a Dream speech in 1963 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Do you know how he began that speech? He said, five score years ago. Now, he could have said 100 years ago. What Dr. King was doing was calling to mind the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln, four score and seven years ago, our fathers. And what Dr. King is doing, he's saying five score years ago. In other words, calling to mind the great emancipation of the 19th century to say, this is the current struggle we are still engaged in in the 20th century. And for those who might have been hostile or those who were skeptical of the motives and the mission of the civil rights movement would realize, oh, uh uh-oh, they're connected to something that we cherish and that we believe in from history past. John is going to do the same thing here. And this is where the twist begins to come. He says, in the beginning, not God, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now his audience is probably getting a little uncomfortable, but they're not yet ready to outright reject what he's saying. It raises questions. Who is this word or what is it and how was it with God? You'll notice that John doesn't mention the name of Jesus. He doesn't do that until verse 17, right? Because as soon as he mentions Jesus, there's a chance that people are going to tune out. He's got to establish who Jesus is before he directly says his name. And what I love that John does here is he's remaining firmly within the Genesis account of creation. In the beginning was the Word. And if I'm a Jewish person of the first century, I go, in the beginning, God, what? Spoke the world into existence. And John's going to say, yes. And let me tell you something more about that Word that was spoken in the beginning. He says, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, if John started with a problem, he has now created for himself two more. First, he seems to be advocating for the very uh, idea, the very religious belief that the Jewish people can't accept. That there, there can't be someone who is both with God and is God at the same time. And if that's a problem to the first century mind, here's the problem to our minds in the 21st. It seems illogical. A person can't both be with someone and also the person themselves. So let me get into the text for just a couple of minutes and I'm going to do my best to kind of make this understandable and relatable with apologies, especially to those of you who do not have English as your first language. I'm going to try to, try to make this understandable here. But here's what John is doing. The word he uses here that is translated into English as word, that word is logos. If that sounds like another word, it's because it's the word from which we get logic. John's going to say, in the beginning was the logic or the word of God. The the actual meaning in Greek is the embodiment of an idea. The embodiment of an idea was in the beginning with God. You may start to go, well, the embodiment of an idea, that's sounding a little like Jesus. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. One translation says the exact imprint 
of his being. So what John's going to do here, he's going to begin to lay the foundation for what is known as the idea or the theology of the Trinity. That God is one, yes, but he is three in one. Three persons, one essential being. Okay? Now, my children have asked me, Dad, how does that work? Have your kids ever asked you this? It's an impossible question. Kids ask the best ones. Because the, the human mind can't fully fathom how God could be both three and one, and yet we've attempted to do it. I'm going to share with you some of what I would consider really, really bad metaphors for the Trinity. One is an egg. And theologians feel so smart when they say an egg is both a shell, a yolk, and the white, and that is how God is. And I go, you're telling me to believe that God is like an egg? That doesn't, that doesn't really help me understand anything about God. One that might be a little bit better, slightly better, is the metaphor of water. It can be both a solid, it can be a liquid, it can be steam. It's one essential thing, but it has three components. But I go, but it still falls short of helping me understand the essential nature of the Trinity. So let me take a couple of minutes to attempt to do that using biblical language. I told you that the word that we get in John chapter 1 is the Greek word logos. Right? And that that is the embodiment of an idea. Let me, let me go one step further than that. The Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, you know the word in Greek for spirit? It's the word pneuma, which means breath. And when I speak and when you speak, our words are carried by what? Breath. And all of that is emanating from an unseen source, which is our mind, which is the origin for everything coming out of us. So that as I'm standing up here communicating, I'm both thinking, breathing, and speaking at the same time. The idea, the pneuma, or breath, and the logos, the expressed idea, at the same time. This, I believe, is the best way for us to understand just a little bit, imperfectly, yes, but to understand a little bit of what it means that God can be three in one. Do you know that as I'm speaking, my words are the exact representation of the thoughts that I'm having? You can't know my thoughts, but you can evaluate my words and understand my thoughts through them. So how do you know an invisible being called God unless there is an expressed embodiment of him in the person of Jesus that people could actually see and touch and hear, that we could learn from and make decisions about? One of those skeptics in the first century of this whole idea of God as Trinity, skeptics of Jesus, was a man named Paul. Paul was a religious leader, a Pharisee. He had devoted his life to the teachings of Judaism. And you may know the story. One day in Acts chapter 9, he's on the Damascus road. He's looking for people to imprison and persecute. And a voice comes from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, Lord, who are you? And the most astonishing words that Paul ever heard, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul would go on to learn who Jesus is and why Jesus matters and listen to the complete 180 that Paul would do in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, speaking of the very one he had once persecuted, Jesus. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." This Jesus that Paul would lift up as the preeminent being in all of the universe is the very one that John himself had followed. He'd learned from. He'd seen both crucified and resurrected. And that leads John to explaining why Jesus matters. If we were to go back to Genesis, you would find two ideas or two words are just jumping off the page in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. First is the idea of life. God is creating life, right? He's creating animals and plants and people and things that will live and exist for his glory. And do you remember what the first thing created is? God says, let there be light. Life and light. John will say in verse 3, in Jesus, in him, was life. You know, Jesus exemplified for this, uh, this for us throughout his ministry on earth. He healed people with blindness, paralysis, leprosy, and other diseases and disabilities. Why? Because he's life. He raised to life a man in Bethany who had died and a little girl in Capernaum who had also died. Why? Because in Jesus is life. At one point in John chapter 8, the religious leaders are ready to take the life of a woman who had sinned. They're ready to execute, and Jesus intervenes, says, I don't condemn you. Why? Because Jesus is life. Friends, I want to make some application about why this matters to us. The fact that Jesus is the source of all life, the fact that he is life itself, is the very reason that we strive as a church to protect the lives of the unborn while at the same time holding compassionately the lives of mothers who have made difficult choices around that. Our value of life is why we, at the same time, protest things like police brutality and grieve when there is a loss of life in the law enforcement community. We've seen several right here in Central Florida in the last few years. Our value for life is what leads Nikki and I to even oppose the death penalty itself And I believe that our value for life should be reflected in our views on things like the environment and war. We should, Christians of all people, be pro-life in every essence of the word and the term. And John will go on. He says that life that was emanating from Jesus, that was embodied in Jesus himself, that life was the light of men. You understand, don't you, that the essential purpose of light is to make things visible. And John's going to say, it is the life of Jesus that lights the way that makes things visible in our world. Jesus did this first by making visible God himself, being the exact representation and imprint. And Jesus continues to be the light by showing us the way to live in a world that is increasingly stumbling in darkness. Now remember again, all of this is connected to Genesis 1. 
John is not going to drift from the Genesis 1 narrative, that first creative act, let there be light. This would end up leading the Hebrew people to believe God or to see God essentially through the lens of light. That that was how they understood him. Why? Because the first thing God created was light. And when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, you remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the, the great exodus through the Red Sea. God shows up, how? As a pillar of light to light their way in the darkness. In fact, one of the first messianic promises in all of scripture, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This was the hope of the people of Israel. And when Jesus shows up, there's essentially three cultures that are dominant at the time. There's the Roman culture, there's the Greek culture, and there's the Jewish culture. And each of those have a different preeminent value. Stay with me for just a second. If you were to ask a Roman of the first century, what is the most important value in the world? They would say glory. The glory of Rome. And their understanding of the gods in Roman thought was one of glory. If you were to ask one of the Greeks, great philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and so on, well, what is the greatest value that exists? What is the way by which you know and understand God? They would say knowledge. Glory is not as important as knowledge. Those who have knowledge embody who God is. And the Jews, as I told you before, they valued light. And so again, the Apostle Paul communicating to a culture that understood who the Romans and the Jews and the Greeks were and what they believed about God, said this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing here is saying, whether you're Greek, whether you're Roman, whether you're Jewish, Whatever you see as the most preeminent value that exists in the world, it is all embodied in the person and in the name of Jesus. Whatever you desire most, whatever you value highest, Jesus is the ultimate expression of what is best and what you need more than anything. It is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And so John says this in verse 5, the last verse we're going to look at together today. He says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's good news, right? The way I memorized this in the beginning in the NIV, the word was not overcome, but understood. The darkness has not understood it. Anybody have that in your, in your Bible or your translation? Well, I, I did some digging on this. Why, why would one translate it as overcome and one translate it as understood? And the reason, very simply, is that the Greek word means to lay hold of something. So you could see it as to lay hold of an idea, to kind of grasp a concept. So the NIV is going to say the darkness hasn't laid hold of it, meaning to understand it. The ESV is going to take a different approach, say, no, 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 the darkness hasn't laid hold of him, meaning they haven't overcome him, they haven't conquered him. You know the truth? They're both right. Jesus shows up in the world, and the world both can't understand or accept him, nor can it conquer or overcome him. The good news this morning is that if you know Jesus, who is the word, who is the giver of life and light, then you are an overcomer with him in whatever you're going through. I know if you're watching the news and and you're on social media and just living your life, man, it seems like the world is spinning out of control and perhaps it is, but Jesus said this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
but take heart because I have overcome the world. This is the essential hope of the gospel. This is the essential message of the Christian faith. That there is one named Jesus who came from God and who is God. And the greatest demonstration of Jesus' overcoming power was the fact that he died on a cross, bleeding and dying for the sins of the world, and three days later, death, as we sang a moment ago, could not hold him. And he was raised to life again. So the question this morning is, do you know the one who is life? Do you know who he is? And do you know why he matters? And secondly, are you sharing that good news with others? You have neighbors, you have coworkers. It looks like their life is pretty well together. One of the beauties of being a pastor is you learn, it's not. It looks good on the outside. But people are dying on the inside. They are walking in darkness. They need the one who is the source of life and the source of light. So we're going to do something in about a month from now. On Christmas Eve, December 24th, we are going to fill this room, this auditorium for a Christmas Eve service. And I want you to understand a little bit about that. You can see the information on the website, but, but I want this to be in your mind so that as you think about this good news that we offer, the one named Jesus, you can start thinking about people that you want to invite to listen to the gospel presentation that evening. We want our Christmas Eve service to be a family experience, to be fun. It's not going to be somber. We're not going to be just kind of sitting around with gloomy faces. Like We want our community to come and see that this is a place where life happens, where they can have life to the fullest. And so I want to encourage you even now to begin thinking about not only attending our Christmas Eve service, but bringing others. We're going to have this room filled up for the very first time. It's going to be an awesome, awesome experience, and we'd love to invite you to that. Friends, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for sending Jesus. God, I thank you that you didn't leave us on our own. God, as I've shared many times uh, in this very room, I, I remember being 15 years old and reading the words of Jesus, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. God, forgive us for the times where we don't take that seriously. Forgive us for the times we doubt whether that can be true or even possible. God, forgive us for the times when, when we think something else is better than the life that you promised in Jesus. And God, this Christmas season, as we unwrap Christmas for the 10th or 20th or 40th or in some cases the 80th time, Lord, help us to find something new, something fresh, a reminder of who Jesus is and why he matters not only this Christmas season, but every day of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.